This episode of the Sticks and Blades podcast is brought to you by Quite Trill Radio, the best hip-hop internet radio show on the planet. If you know me or you train with me in the past, you know that I hate to train in silence, and that's where Quite Trill comes in. Quite Trill is the soundtrack to all of my training sessions. Quite Trill Radio has over 50-plus episodes that are about two hours apiece that are going to bring you some of the best in hip-hop, soul, and R&B, as well as underground hip-hop music. To listen, follow them on Facebook or Instagram at Quite Trill Worldwide. That's Quite, Q-U-I-T-E, Trill, T-R-I-L-L, Worldwide. Quite Trill Radio. The Sticks and Blades podcast is also brought to you by Vulpus Training. Vulpus Training is the home of some of the best training blades on the market. All of their blades are handcrafted. This means no CNC machines, water jets, or laser cuttings are used to manufacture their blades. All of their blades are hand ground on a belt sander freehand like a real blade. They offer 41 different blade designs, everything from traditional Filipino long blades, tomahawks, short everyday carry blades. Vulpus Training has you covered for all your training blade needs. I recently received their Taliban with a handguard that I'm actually holding my hand right now as we speak. And the handguard is actually big enough to fit a hockey glove through, guys, which means it's ideal for sparring. And the weight and the balance of the blade is pretty amazing. So to order, check them out on Facebook or Instagram at Vulpus Training. That's Vulpus, V-U-L-P-E-S, Training. Vulpus training. Welcome to another episode of the Sticks and Blades podcast. I'm your host, Doug Marsh. And my guest today, this man, he's a former Marine. He's a pioneer and legend in the Filipino martial arts. He's a member of several martial arts hall of fames around the world. And I'm excited to have him. He's the founder of American Modern Arnis Associates. Welcome to the show, Guru Tom Bolden. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Uh, just... Like I was saying, dealing with some of this heat down here in Texas, but it's to be expected. <laughs> but uh, we'll go ahead and we'll jump into the leadership question. And that question is, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize that you had the skills to lead? Well, let me see. Which one do I start with first? Uh, I think that uh, when I first started, a lot of it had to do with the way I was raised. I was raised on a farm. So I was always given a lot of responsibility, especially being the oldest kid. So I was put in charge of my siblings. So that helped a lot. And even in school, I was always a, a very good student. And uh, people always followed me there. Of course, then I went into Marine Corps. And uh, that's all about leadership. I became an NCO. So I went to leadership school there. 
And of course, then I got into management after college and I worked at IBM and that was all about leadership once I became a manager. So I, uh, I uh, uh, took a lot of leadership courses and training there. Now, what is required of a leader? I think the big thing is this, you have to be able to uh, influence people to have them follow you, set example, listen to them, you know, always care. You have to realize that people are your biggest asset and don't do, don't do anything or ask them to do anything that you wouldn't do. As I said, again, set the example and influence them and have them respect them. And one way to respect for them to respect you is to respect them. Absolutely. So when you started your training in the FMA, it was at a time that a lot of people didn't even know what, you know, Kali or Scream or Arnis was. How did you start your training in Filipino martial arts? And, and when did that introduction come? Well, I'd never heard of Filipino martial arts. Um, I had been in Marine Corps, I'd gone to boot camp and I had, uh, that was my formal introduction to martial arts. I had studied uh, bayonet training, rifle training, and then in advanced training, I did the same thing. Once I got into uh, a regular outfit, I studied Sharon Rue. But it wasn't until I uh, got transferred to Hawaii that I started to find a little bit about Filipino martial arts, not that much. All of my instructors were Filipino because you had the whole Filipino group in Hawaii that were teaching Kimbo at the time. And I studied with them. And my teacher was Florentino Ponce Ponce. And it was a little while after he'd started uh, a class up at Camp Smith that he started teaching Kimbo. He'd asked me to be his assistant. So a little while after that, he pulled me to the side after class one day and he said, look, I'm going to teach you Filipino. He said, you're my uh, assistant, so you need to know more. Uh, Filipino. And that was all he ever said. I never knew anything about Filipino martial arts. I didn't know what it was. So I guess that was my introduction, but it wasn't until about 10 years later that I really realized what he had taught me and all of the stuff that he said started to make sense. So for the listeners, you know, I said that you started at a time where not too many people knew what it was. Could you tell us what, what years that you started training in the Filipino martial arts? Yes, that was uh, 1964 when I got transferred to Hawaii in the United States Marine Corps. Surely at that time, very few non-Filipinos knew what Filipino martial arts were about. I surely didn't. So as I said, the first I really... When I, when I really started to understand was a while later, even like 10 years after I left Hawaii. So what was that training like over there in uh, in Hawaii with uh, with Master Ponzi Ponzi? Was it like hard training or, you know, how how, how was it with him? Well, Kempo or Kaji Kempo, because that's what it was. It was very brutal, man. I mean, just total brutal training. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was under Professor Imperato who used to train on Professor Chow or was his main teacher. But at the same time, he was creating his own style over in the Filipino martial arts uh, settlement called the Palama Settlement. And they called the school over there the Blood School. And the reason for that was they, it was a whole saying that you didn't leave until there was blood on the floor. So, so it, <laughs> it, it, it was quite tough. It was rough. 
Definitely right. Yeah, de- you know, so you tra- you trained over there with Master Ponzi Ponzi. You said you came back to the mainland, and uh, you made mention. You said about ten years transpired before you realized the value of what it was that you learned from over there. Well, what had happened was uh, later on I found this out. The Filipinos who 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 had done who did Kempo under Professor Child, they had introduced in the Kempo elements of uh, screamer. And they called it stick, knife, club, all of that. But they really didn't tell anybody that it was a screamer. It was just kind of mixed as a part of Kempo Karate. So they never used anything relating to Filipino martial arts. So when I got back from Hawaii after a couple years over there, I couldn't find anything, uh, even Kempo over here in the mainland. And then I went to college. I started teaching Kempo there. And after I graduated from there, I came up to New York. I started to work by them, and I, I was still looking around. So the first thing I heard about Filipino martial arts, there was a gentleman named uh, now Grandmaster Matt Marinas. He used to mm-hmm. do a system that they call Arnis Lanada, and that was up in the Northeast. And that was the first thing I had heard about uh a screamer, and then I guess around 1970, 71, something like that, uh, Dano Santos came out with this book called The Filipino Martial Arts. And not only that, they, were, they started to write about it in, um, in the Black Belt magazine, that kind of thing. So I, uh, as I started to read about it, and I, 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 I saw this word, a screamer, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I remember seeing that word on my certificate, and I just thought at the time, because a lot of certificates have Latin on them, I thought it was some Latin word. I didn't connect the two. And I went back and I looked at my certificate, and that's when I kind of put it all together, because he hadn't mentioned the whole idea of he was going to teach me Filipino art. And once I saw it all, I remember what he said, how it all was the same as what we learned in Kempo just a matter of translating to the stick, I realized what he taught me. So I start to try to appreciate it. I uh, tried to put everything back together then again. And then what I started to do, because at that time I'm working at IBM, I started to go back to Hawaii to train with him more. So that was about how that, that turned out. So when you went back to Hawaii with him, you focused more on the Filipino aspect of the training versus uh, the Kempo you were learning from him at back in the 60s? Well, when I went back, he was still in Kempo, but uh, Master Ponce Ponce was into a lot of things. He he did uh, he did Chinese martial because he was part Chinese too. He did the Kempo, he did Tai Chi, and he did Kung Fu and the Screamer. So he now when I started to go back, he used to he started to teach me Tai Chi, and he concentrated that on a bit, and he taught more of the Screamer, and uh, but he really started to get into Tai Chi a lot, even though I, he did uh, teach me more about Kempo. Mm, nice. You know, so a lot of people that know who you are, they know you uh, from Modern Arnis. And when you began your training with Modern Arnis and your association with uh, with the late Remy Prasis, uh can you tell us about when you met Remy, how, how that came about? Well, what had happened, I had started to work at IBM in 1970, and uh, I had been looking around for Filipino martial arts, couldn't find anything. 
And then uh, one day, I always read uh, Black Belt Magazine, the martial arts magazine. So then one day, I was looking in the martial arts magazine. I think it was Black Belt. And there was this uh, ad saying, oh, Filipino Grandmaster is going to be down in uh, Pennsylvania. Intensive two-week training. And I'm like, wow, you know, uh, and it said to Ramey Priestess. I'm like, wow, man, I got I to gotta go and attend this. I haven't been able to find any of this stuff. So I went to my boss and I asked him and told him I wanted to take vacation and uh, I got it. So when uh, time for the uh, the camp came, I went down there and uh, as I said, it was two weeks long. We used to train 10 hours a day and there must have been, it was a big class. There must have been about uh, 80, 80 people in the class and uh, I was really kind of anxious to uh, start on Monday. And when I started, I was kind of surprised because uh, I found out that what he was teaching in terms of flavor was uh, was totally different than what the way Ponce Ponce had taught it. Ponce was very, very, very smooth. It was very similar and fluid like Kempo. Whereas uh, Professor Prasis, his background had been Shotokan, so his modern Arnis uh, was quite uh, linear and somewhat rigid like Shotokan. So I was kind of surprised at seeing that. But what I uh, did was I could I could understand what he was doing, so I just kind of picked it up and I adapted it to my movement, my energy, and my way of doing things in terms of I, the principles were all the same. Okay, so there there were some similar, excuse me, some similarities to uh, what you were doing with Master Ponzi Ponzi and the things that you were learning in modern Arnis then? Oh, yeah, there, there were a lot of... Uh, similarities in terms of movement, in terms of technique. It's just that the energy was different. It was a lot, but I'd learned in Hawaii, it was a lot more fluid, more dance-like compared to like being more karate-like was the main mm. difference. I see. You know, so uh, during that time when you were with uh, Professor Presses, that was uh, like the 1980s, am I correct? Yes, that was the early 80s when I first started studying with Professor Priest. Okay, so I imagine you came up with a, a couple of people I know in, in modern Arnis. Well, not know, but I know of, and uh, that's uh, Leonard Trigg and Doug Pierre. Can you can you talk about these two gentlemen for the folks that might not know who they are? Well, I don't. I, I never met uh, Grandmaster Leonard Trigg. I know Doug Pierre very, very well. I've known Doug for, God, shit, over 30 years. I first met Doug at a at one of Ramey Priestess's uh, summer camps. I think it was the, to be exact, I think it was the 1987 one because I remember recording that one. And uh, as I said, Professor Trigg, I, I never knew him. Uh, I don't know if you know of Lee Lowry. He was one of the main in terms of uh, the black martial artists. He was one of the few black martial artists, along with uh, Bowden Swing, that were in at that time, and myself. So, so I was quite surprised when I saw Doug and very happy to see him. As I said, that was nice. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, I know eventually you ended up uh, parting ways with uh, Professor Presses. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit as to why you ended up leaving uh, Professor Presses and was it difficult to leave him? Well, what I found out was this. I... Having come from the Hawaiian line, these guys were very, very, they were very strict and very tough. I mean, 
rank didn't mean anything. It was always about skill. And I guess over a period of time, remember now, it has been, what, uh, 20 years. And over that period of time, a lot had changed with martial arts when it came to the quality, things had been uh, watered down somewhat. And since Professor really didn't have a school, his whole method of teaching was uh, seminars. And he, he would rely on people come, I mean, different instructors bringing people to his seminars. A lot of those people were people, people who had backgrounds in karate, which was worked out quite well for them because he kind of taught it from a karate base. But because of that seminar format, uh, he didn't have very high standards in terms of promoting people and passing people. And I, I found I didn't like that. So eventually it got to the point where I just couldn't take it anymore. So I kind of got out because you would end up having uh, high-ranking black belts as far as, you know, from my training, uh, wouldn't even be, uh, it'd be lucky to be white belts, really. And, uh, but a lot, it was, you know, I have to realize it was kind of a money-making venture. And I guess it served its purposes because I, I remember when I first uh, got involved with it, we were saying, oh, you know, I did my summer camp. Some not come some of them come to my summer camp and get your your basic instructor certificate. So I'm thinking to myself, how can you go to a one weekend or one day camp and get an instructor certificate? So it was all of that together that kept kind of led me, me to part ways, and uh, I really wanted to concentrate on quality. I've always been into that. That's my initial training. So that was the main reason why I left. One of the main reasons why I left, yeah. So just a quality control issue uh, versus just, you know, not having a love for the art anymore. Oh, yeah. It had nothing to do with lack of a love for art. I loved art. I practiced it all this time. It was just that I didn't like, I didn't like what I saw going on in terms of what people were promoted. I mean, the quality was just... I mean, really low at that point. So I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Understood. So this leads us to uh, the American Modern Arnese Associates. You know, over the past couple of weeks, I actually had an opportunity to watch several of your videos on YouTube. And I think all of them are are, are excellent. The way that you break down some of the movements uh, within uh, your art, uh, your movement altogether, your footwork, very smooth, very smooth, looks good. You know, so what what are some of the, the similarities and differences with uh, the American Modern Arnese Associates versus uh, just typical modern Arnese, the stuff that people can find out there? Well, uh, <laughs> I, I always kind of kid uh, friends of mine, and that's Doug is one of those. I, I say, look, you know, all I have to do is see somebody doing an art, and I can tell you right away, yep, that's modern Arnese. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because they still are very stiffy. Stand up straight, stiff, very low movement, not rhythmic. And again, I mean, that came from the way Professor taught them. So that's one of the main differences that you see. These guys are very... Uh, they don't move very well. They're very much one-dimensional. They are stand-up straight. Uh, my background, 
not only was influenced by the Kempo that I'd learned in Hawaii, I studied a lot of different arts over that over the time. I mean, it, in student, I studied, studied and taught Tai Chi for over 30 years. I studied uh, Capoeira, Black Belts and Taekwondo, studied Aikido. So I've studied about everything that's kind of influenced the way that I move. In addition to having taught dancing, which didn't hurt. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, one of my... I don't mean to interrupt, but one of my teachers, he always would say, you know, someone that can dance, they're always going to have kind of the upper hand in terms of timing and movement and rhythm as, uh, in relation to their martial arts. So that, that makes sense. Well, I always tell, and it's kind of as a joke, but I always tell my students, I say, you know, if you can cha-cha, you can do this art. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's real. Cha-cha, merengue, any of that stuff. And I mean, I don't know if it has to do that, but you've seen my student probably uh, Peter Vargas on uh, on on the internet and not on the web. You know, he's a a Puerto Rican and he has a lot of Spanish background. Hasn't hurt him. My other student Oscar Lopez hasn't hurt him. So it's it works very well. And I know myself. I used to teach uh, Latin dance. And I found it to be a, ben a big benefit. But then if you look at capoeira, capoeira is a musical art. And, mm -hmm. so, and so was so was Arnese in the Philippines. It was taught to rhythm and music. As a matter of fact, it was head and dance. A lot of that has been lost today, so people don't do it anymore. Not widely anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Within your uh your American modern Arnis, there's there's an influence of Balitna walk. I, I I can see it in the way that you know you move and the way that you kind of handle your your weapon. Am I right in my in my observation of that? Do I see Balitna walk? Yes, that's true, and that comes a lot from Professor Prasis because Professor Prasis's base art to modern Arnis was Balitna walk. He learned. Valenta walk from uh, from Grandmaster Moncal, but Grandmaster Moncal learned Valenta walk from the Sephedras. in Ting and his, uh, uh well, uh, from the the, the old man Sephedra, Leonardo Sephedra uh, and uh, Doring Sephedra. Uh, his father, my my teacher, that's Singh Atilio. His his father, Enting. Tilio, they used to teach uh, Grandmaster Moncal. They taught him their form of Balintawak, as a Federal Screamer. And it was later on that Raymi met Moncal and he started to teach him what he learned from uh, uh, Tilios. And then later on, he actually went on to learn with Ancion Bacon. But yes, an awful lot of uh, Balintawak in modern Arnis. One of the main pillars, as I said, of uh, modern Arnis is Balintawak. And I feel proud to know that I've had a chance to go back and study with Grandmaster Tilio. I'm one of only four in modern Arnis. I'm one of uh, his disciples and successors in Atelio Balintawak. And that's really done a lot to kind of bring everything together. In addition to the fact that I also studied quite a bit and spent time with Grandmaster uh, Tabawada. 
Bobby Tabuata. Bobby, Ta- Bobby Tabuata. I did several seminars with him. and So, yeah, there is a lot of Galantawak influence in it. Okay, so with, with Master Attilio, you spent some time uh, training with him. What was he like as an instructor? He is uh, very good. If you've seen Grandmaster Tabuata, he's different. Grandmaster Tabuata is a big, thick guy. His art is all about speed and uh, power. Uh, Grandmaster Tilio is a real small guy. He's only like about, what, I guess, 5'2", small. So uh, he uses a lot more finesse. The other thing that's different is if you see Grandmaster Tabawada and the style of Balintawak that comes through uh, Grandmaster Villasan, they use very short sticks. They use that 24-inch stick in a short range. Mm-hmm. Grandmaster Attilio uses a long stick, so he believes in long range and short range. And another thing about Grandmaster Attilio, he's very, his, his checking and his empty hand. He's very, very sensitive. That is extremely sensitive. And he has uh, a lot of his disarms are different than I've seen anywhere before, even though a lot of them I saw Professor Price because of the common background. But those are some of the differences mainly that I that I've noticed. Well, well what you said is kind of interesting in terms of long range play. You know, Balitnawak isn't known as a as a long range art. It's it's a very close range, you know, with all the trapping and, and all of the disarms and, and checking as you're talking about. How does the long range play uh play into the Atilio style of uh Balitnawak? Well, first of all, as I said, Grandmaster Atilio uses a long twenty eight inch stick. So right away he can uh, he can play at a long range because he has a longer stick, but he can also play at close range. His big thing is this. You know, the fight is not always going to be close. You have to get at long range sometime to be able to deal with the opponent, and that's what he teaches in his art, both long and short range. He's very good in close. He's very good... Uh, Long range. As a matter of fact, now this is a story from Grandmaster Tilio. I guess when he was growing up, uh, he was very young when his father was in the Balintawa Club. When they would fight in the Philippines, I guess there's always a rivalry between the Dose Padas people and the uh, Balintawa people. And one of the few people that used to fight was uh, Ising, my teacher, Grandmaster Tilio. And uh, he would fight. And he would do very well against the Dose Pontus people. One of the things that allowed him to do that, he learned the long-range style of the Sefetras also, as opposed to just the short-range, some of the short-range stuff that had started to be propagated by Ancion. So, so he benefited from the long-range style when he would fight, and he did quite well against the Dose Pontus people. Mm, interesting. So. This uh this interview is going to come to a close. It's a shorter one, um, but I just wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of the future of your art, where do you see it, and and where do you see the future of the Filipino martial arts? Well, in terms of my art, I, I'm always trying to make it better. I'm always trying to get and propagate to students that can carry it on at a very high level. Because to answer the other question. 
where do I see a Filipino martial arts? I, uh, it's becoming very commercialized. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. I've seen this over my almost 60 years of training. It happens with every art. As soon as it becomes popular, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. The quality goes down the hill because they're more interested in making money than anything else. One of the things that I feel very uh, fortunate to have done is I always had a job. I worked as an engineer, so I never had to teach martial arts as a as a living. So I never had to compromise my uh, standards. I always kept it high because I frankly didn't care less. But I had a lot of students as long as I taught them right, and they were excellent. So that's kind of kind of it in a nutshell, I guess. Now that makes plenty of sense because you're you're right. When you're running a business. You know, you you have to kind of dangle that carrot, you know, and if you if you're really hard on the students and you have super, super high standards, you're not going to have a, a student base because some people, they come, you know, as a as a social as a social construct versus a training construct. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, sure. And okay. uh, to me, it's just uh, it's always just something I did as a way of life. I've always done it. I do it for physical fitness, I do it for my mind, for all of those different reasons, and I want to be able to share it. So I never cared about making money with it. I just did it for that reason. Yeah, and that's and that's where it's at. That's where the art stays pure. You know, uh, usually some of the best instructors that you'll see, you know, they aren't the ones that are out uh, doing these huge seminars around the world. They're usually guys that have one or two people that come by every weekend and, um, they they just teach out of their backyards or their garages or in the parks. Yeah. I always say to people, if you look at old time masters, this this whole thing of having thousands of students is a new thing. If you look at the great masses from the past, I mean, a lot of times those lucky guys would be lucky to have one, maybe two or three disciples. They carried on their art. They didn't have this stuff of thousands of people running around trying to teach thousands of people and giving out rank like crazy. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I like to close out the show uh, with my 10 questions, and these are kind of rapid fire questions. Uh, We'll go ahead and kick it off. The first question is, what is your favorite weapons category? Favorite weapons category is stick. Okay. What's your least favorite weapons category? Uh, if I can just pick one, I would say non-shuffling. Makes sense. What do you love about What do you love about the Filipino martial arts? It's totally versatile, all inclusive. I always tell my people: once you start to understand this art you will realize that it's all inclusive. And if you've done anything else as you study and learn, you realize it's all the same. I've heard that before. Just to sidetrack, I remember I heard Ernesto Preza say that one time. It is all the same. And <laughs> I, I agree with that. There's only so many different ways you can manipulate a body and you know do things. It's all the same at the end. Okay, so w- what turns you off about the Filipino martial arts? Well, I guess the poor quality that's being propagated is one of the things. Everybody jumping on a bandwagon, 
and everybody running around claiming they are masters, especially this whole thing of this inflated rank. I mean, oh, I never, I've never seen so many high-ranking people. I mean, this stuff is unheard of. You never heard of this before. Everybody and his brother's a grandmaster. They have Pudong Guru or some supreme grandmaster. It's, that's the main thing that turns me off about it. Mm. What do you love to do besides train martial arts? Just as a regular hobby or something I like to do? Yeah, just a regular hobby outside of the arts. Well, I <laughs> I have an interesting hobby. I'm into treasure hunting. So I run around, I use a metal detector that look for the treasure all the time. And in many ways, I guess it's like uh, like Filipino martial arts. If you're going to be good at it, you got to stay... You, you got to stay with it. So that's kind of what I do when I'm not doing martial arts. Okay. What do you hate in general? What do I hate in yes, general? Sir. Yes, sir. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I try not to really get to the point where I... I really, really hate anything. I try to understand what's going on. I, I, you know, I don't like the way some things are done, the way some things turn out. But I try to really, I try to look positive at things and make and find the positives in everything, as opposed to really going out and trying to hate. I'm quite sure there are some things I don't like, but generally speaking, I try not to hate anything. I understand. I'll tell you what I hate, sir. I hate Brussels sprouts. <laughs> just real, <laughs> just just real simple. <laughs> okay. All right. So the next question: What's your favorite curse word? My favorite what? Curse word. I missed. I'm, I'm missing what it was. Yes. I'm sorry. Your favorite curse word. Oh. Favorite curse. profane word. Curse word. Oh wow. <laughs> Oh, God, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's so many to choose from, right? So many to choose from. I, I don't know, man. I that That's one of tough, that's a tough one, I guess. Okay. Well, what martial art besides the Filipino martial arts would you like to try? Something you haven't done yet. Something I haven't done yet. Um, hmm. I've done most of them, so I guess maybe, oh, God, I guess maybe just to see if it's real, if it works, I've seen it. I've seen the Russian Sistema, but it looks a lot like Aikido to me and a lot of the other arts. I, I just wonder if it's real, so I guess I'd like to try that, the Sistema. Okay. What martial art would you not want to try? What martial art would I not want to try? I think most martial arts are good. Uh, I guess there are maybe certain styles propagated by some people that I might not like to try just because the, the standards are lo so low. But I think in general, I mean, I think authentic martial arts, I'd probably like to try any of them. I think all of them are good. Okay. And the last question, when it's all said and done, what do you want your martial arts legacy to be? What would you want to be remembered for? Uh, that I uh, try to maintain high standards. And uh, 
I tried to propagate it, that in my students. And I think that that is uh, what we're going to have to do if the arcs are going to survive because uh, they're really becoming watered down now. Okay. Now, Guru Bolden, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, I know that we're going through this pandemic right now and, you know, travel and training is something that uh, not all of us are prepared to do. But uh, when all this is over with, how could someone get in contact with you? And if uh, they're interested in seeing some of your videos or something like that, would you be able to direct them to a YouTube channel or uh, a social media account of some sort? Well, my uh, website, and, and through that they can go to YouTube, is uh, www.americanarnies.com. And there's a link that goes to my website, uh, my uh, YouTube page right there. So they can, they can find any videos uh, that way. Okay. And in terms of uh, seminars, if they wanted to get in contact with you once all this is over with, it, would they be able to uh, find you that way also? Yes, they can get me through the website. Uh, my email, the email address for the association is on there. And uh, also the phone number. My phone number is also on the website. All of that is on the website. Yes. All right. Fantastic. Well, sir, I appreciate you taking your time out to uh, talk to us. I really appreciate uh, hearing the stories about, you know, Master Pressus, Master Ponzi Ponzi. And uh, I just want to say that I consider you a true pioneer and legend in uh, the Filipino martial arts. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. Really been a pleasure doing this. I feel honored. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to our show. Subscribe, rate, share, leave a review, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at South Texas Kali. Until next time, stay safe and train hard. Peace.